0: I would ask that you please turn with me in your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of Mark, as we will be considering this morning, chapter 15 and verses 16 to 32. Mark chapter 15, verses 16 to 32. Mark 15, verses 16 to 32. Please then, brothers and sisters, if you would, uh, heareth me then the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters, and they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak, and twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews. And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Serene, who was coming in from the country, the father And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him, To one another saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who are crucified with Him also reviled Him. Thus far as a reading of God's Word. Now we've all probably witnessed someone that we love suffer. Uh, some of you here maybe have experienced it uh, more closely than others have. Maybe you've experienced it within your, within your own home. Uh, perhaps a, a spouse who is suffering from some illness or some disease that perhaps even threatens their life. Maybe it's a, a father, a mother, a child who lives with you. And if you have in the past or if you currently have a loved one uh, going through such a thing, I would imagine that, that one would think and then plead with God to please, according to His will, make it stop. Right? Plead, plead with God, if it is according to your will, please, Lord, cause this suffering that they are enduring to stop. Because you cannot help but, but be moved to sadness. You cannot help but be moved to, to heartache and grief and despair and seeing the suffering Right, the agony, the pain, the torment that someone that you love is going through when they suffer. And yet, it doesn't necessarily have to to be someone that you love. That's why we've all probably seen the TV commercial with, uh, you know, starving child from, from another country that, and when you see that it it pulls on your heartstrings, maybe, maybe you turn aside because you don't want to see those, those images. Uh, that's why if someone tells you about a, a, maybe a friend that they have, or a friend of a friend who's going through cancer, right? it, it moves you, you feel terrible over it, and you, you pray for them. And unless there's something really wrong with you, uh, you don't find delight in someone else's pain. Right? You don't want it to continue, but instead you f- you feel disturbed by pain as being a a human being made in the image of God who knows what it's like to one degree or another, what, it, what it's like to suffer. And this is though what is so unnerving about our text today. This is what is so unnerving about what we have read in the previous two weeks, right? There, there wasn't a sense that what was happening to Jesus was enough, that, that it should be brought to a stop. Right? There, there were no hearts in the crowd moved to, to pity over Jesus and in all that he was enduring, all the agony and pain that he was suffering. There was no one there who had compassion for another human being who was having to suffer such such extreme punishment. Right, first blindfolded, we were told, slapped, right, punched, spat upon, mocked, and as we read in our text last week, now Jesus is brought be- before Pilate, and and Pilate tells than to, to scourge Jesus. And so he is, he is beaten with this whip we've seen. Pieces of his flesh torn out of his body as the ends of those cords dug into his flesh. And we said that that was, that was a mercy from Pilate towards Jesus. That was compassion shown from Pilate towards Jesus to put an end to the spectacle. He believed that after scourging Jesus, that the crowd would look upon Jesus and be moved to mercy and compassion and say, He's had enough. No more. But what we see is they do not. They had forgotten their own humanity and behaved like animals. Like after tasting blood, not being satisfied and going back for more and more and more. Right? Forgetting any sense of, of, of self-decency and self-control. Right? We're told in John's Gospel, that after the scourging of Jesus, that Pilate brings Jesus back out before the crowd. And he says to the crowd, I find no guilt in this man. You see, Pilate's trying to, in all of his power, he's trying to exercise, he's trying to free Jesus. He's trying to get the crowd to say, yes, let Jesus go. But what are we told? No, when he, when he brings Jesus out before the crowd, bloody, bruised, bleeding... Beaten to a pulp, and they see him. All the chief priests can yell is, "Crucify him! Crucify him!" We're even told that the crowd yells out and threatens Caesar, or excuse me, threatens Pilate, and says to them, "If you release him, you are no friend to Caesar." They try to scare him. They try to stir up fear in the heart of Pilate. And so, what does Pilate do? He gives in to the commands of the people. And he gives them exactly what they wanted, which was the crucifixion of the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is what we are going to read about in our text today. A text that is, that we will find is rich with much symbolism and and fulfillment, which ought to cause us when we see this, when we become aware of it, it ought to cause us to rejoice. Right? Rejoice even in light of the horrors that we read about. Because as we see, right, God is bringing All that he has decreed to pass. He is bringing all of those things to pass. He is accomplishing his good will and purpose. And what is occurring here with Christ? For since the fall of man, everything was progressing towards this single event. And it is this single event, that is the single greatest event that has ever occurred in history, in time and space. It is not man walking on the moon. Right? It was not the United States fighting for and winning independence. It was not any technological or medical breakthrough that we have discovered. It is not the rising and falling of some of the mightiest empires to have ever existed that occupy that spot. But rather it is the putting to death the sinless son of God for the sins of every man, woman, child who would ever believe so that they might spend eternity with God that occupies that spot, a spot that will never be usurped or overtaken. Now with that being said, for the remainder of our time, we want to look at what our text reveals to us about who Christ is, what He has accomplished in His suffering and in His death on the cross, and why it is so important. Right? Why is it that people are willing to, to go to distant lands to proclaim this gospel and die for it? Right? Why are people willing to confess Christ in nations that threaten them with jail or death? Right? Why are people willing to do that? And so we're going to look at this today, our text, under three headings. And the three headings are this. First, Jesus as the second Adam. Jesus as the second Adam. Second, Jesus as Lamb of God. Jesus as Lamb of God. And third, Jesus as Savior and King. Jesus as Savior and King. Please look with me then once more at verses 16 to 20 as this forms the basis of And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of his purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. Here we see that the the mocking, that the insults, that that the punishment that Jesus received was not incurred or did not just rest alone in the Jews, but likewise it extended even to the Romans, right? We see this going on with the the Roman soldiers. As they lead Jesus into the the governor's headquarters, they have some some fun at Jesus' expense. We're told they they clothe Him with a purple cloak. They they twist together uh, a thorny crown. And as Matthew tells us in his Gospel, they even put a a reed in His right hand. And they begin to salute Him. Hail, King of the Jews! Everything they gave Him though, that cloak, that crown, that reed, which was meant to to, to figure or to, to look like a, a, a king's scepter that they put in his hand, all of those things they gave to him to humiliate him and to mock him. Right, that that robe that they put on his shoulders was a robe of shame. Right? That that thorny crown they placed on his head was a crown of shame. That reed that they put in his hand to look like a scepter of a king was a reed of shame. And if that wasn't enough, they struck him on the head, we're told, with that reed, so as to drive those sharp thorns deeper into the scalp of our Lord so that blood may flow down from his face. And as they do this, they are spitting on him and they are mocking him and they are offering to him false and insincere homage. And the entire time, brothers and sisters, Jesus doesn't say a word. The entire time all of this is going on, he does not say a word. And the reason he doesn't say a word is he doesn't say it for us. Right? He doesn't say a word for us. Remember how vividly last week we looked at how Isaac Ambrose described the scourgings that Christ suffered from. Right? He's, how he was scourged from his shoulders to his feet. But what is it that we see in our text today? Not only was he bleeding from shoulder to feet, now he likewise is bleeding on the top of his head. So as to now, he is bleeding from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And why does Jesus have to bleed from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet? Because we, from the top of our heads to the bottom of our feet, are filled with sin. This is why Christ must bleed from the top of his head to the bottom of his feet. And in all of this, in all that's been described here for us, I want you to see the great symbolism and the great significance of this crown of thorns that has been placed upon our Lord's head. And so I ask, think about it. Where, where is the first place in Scripture that you remember hearing about thorns? Where is the first place in Scripture that you can remember hearing about thorns? Genesis chapter 3 verses 17 and 18. This is what we read. This is what the Lord says to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat all of the days of your life. Here it is. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. Do you see that, brothers and sisters? Thorns are the result of the curse brought forth because of man's sin. Right? Our sin brought forth thorns. And now it is Christ who must wear these thorns upon His body for us. Right? The, the sin that was incurred because of us was the curse now that is placed upon our Lord's body in order that He might take away that curse that was brought upon because of our sin. And yet, as all of this is taking place, in the mocking of Christ, in the punishment of Christ, in the causing of our Lord's head to bleed, as that reed is, is being beaten against His head, all of this symbolism, all of this background, is being lost on the Roman soldiers. But it's not being lost on Christ, and it's not lost on God, right? Christ knows exactly what it meant for Him to come into the world. Right, Christ knew exactly what it meant. And it meant for him to come into this world as the second Adam to do what the first Adam failed to do. Right, In the failure of the first Adam, all died. But in the act of and in the passive obedience of Christ, in the fulfilling of the law and in the dying of the cross, he will make alive as the second Adam all who trust in his name. For the first man, Adam, became a living being, the, the second Adam, through the wearing of this thorny crown, through His punishment, through the bearing of the curse, through the penalty of sin that He must deal with, He has become a life-giving Spirit. We need to see this. We need to understand that thorns are a reminder of death. Thorns are a reminder of the curse. Thorns are a reminder of the eternal condemnation that we deserve, but Christ put them on His head so that you do not have to wear that crown of thorns in hell. And in taking that crown of thorns off your head, what you need to see is that He replaced that crown upon your head with a crown of righteousness. He took away that crown of thorns and He has given you a crown of righteousness which the Lord will award you on that last day. It was Luther who said this, that Christ was the greatest sinner who ever lived. Christ was the greatest sinner who ever lived, yet who knew no sin. Yet who knew no sin. And it was those thorns placed upon His head that symbolized that sin. It was that crown of thorns that we deserve that He removed from our head and that He placed upon His own. Yet, brothers and sisters, what we have to understand is that if you are here today and you have not trusted in Christ, that crown of thorns still remains on your head. The, the penalty for your sin still remains on you. The condemnation and the curses still abide on you. You are still under the curse. Yet for the sinner, if that is you, it is still true as it was for every one of us here today who have trusted in Christ that if you repent of your sin and you turn to, your, and you turn to Christ by faith, that He can redeem you from the curse. He can redeem you from the curse. All is not lost for the unbeliever. There is still hope for the unbeliever, but what they need to understand is that that hope is not in themselves. That hope is not in their own righteousness. That hope is not in I'm a good person, but rather that hope is in Christ. And in trusting and believing that as Christ wore that crown of thorns upon that cross, that He suffered and died for your sins there. That as He wore that crown upon the cross, He was wearing that crown for you there. And here is the promise. Here is the great promise that we have that although through the first Adam sin came into the world and, and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sin, Paul says this in Romans 5, that the free gift is not like the trespass. For the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Brought justification. You see, because of the first Adam, legally, our righteousness became unrighteousness based on what our covenant head did. Right? What he did fell upon us. His disobedience was imputed to all of his posterity, which includes you and I. This is why Christ so had to come into the world as the second Adam. As the federal head of the new covenant through His perfect obedience now He is able to impute that perfect righteousness to you and I and all who believe. Right? This is that great exchange, brothers and sisters, that occurs upon the cross where our sin is imputed to Christ and Christ's righteousness is imputed to His own. It's what is so important for us to see that Christ is experiencing in our text today. He is enduring the curses of our sin, both original, that which we have from Adam, and actual, that which we commit ourselves, which is symbolized by that crown of thorns placed upon his head as the second Adam. And we need to see, we needed Christ to be that second Adam. We needed an alien righteousness, because we did not have a righteousness of our own. But this is not all that we need. And this is not all that bears great significance in our text today. And so this leads us to point number two, which is Jesus, the Lamb of God. Jesus, the Lamb of God. Now after, in verse 20, we're told, they led Him out to crucify Him. So after the, the soldiers have dressed Him up and have mocked Him, they have now led Him out to crucify Him. And it's here in leading Him out to crucify Him, that we see the, the culmination of that proclamation that John the Baptist made in John chapter 1, verse 29. And what does John the Baptist say when he sees Jesus? Behold, the Lamb of God, who has come to take away the sins of the world. Here we see the fulfillment of Isaiah 53, 7, as Jesus is being led to the cross. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that is before its shears is silent, so He opened not His mouth. Here is where we see the fulfillment of what began in Genesis 22. What happened in Genesis 22? This is where our, our Lord tells Abraham to, to take Isaac to the mountaintop and to sacrifice him. To make his son an offering unto the Lord. And what does Abraham do? He listens, he obeys as, he, as the Lord is testing his faith and he, he takes his son Isaac to the mountaintop. And as they're preparing, For the fire, Isaac looks around and he doesn't see a lamb. And so he asks his father, Father, where where is the lamb? Where is the lamb that we need to sacrifice to God? And do you remember Abraham's response? He responds, God will provide. God will provide. And as Abraham, believing God would provide, raised that knife to plunge into his son, what does the Lord say? Stop! Don't do it. And Abraham looks behind him, and there's a ram who's caught in the thicket by his horns. Right? God did provide, but what we need to see that that was recorded for us. That was Abraham went and told so many others about that, and it's recorded for all successive generations, so that so that through that we might see that that was pointing forward to a greater lamb that was to be provided for by God. Right? There was going to be a greater sacrifice that God was going to provide for the sins of His people. And that was the sacrifice of His only beloved Son. That He was going to provide for the sin of the world and now being led to His death while carrying His cross, He is the true and final lamb of God. He is the perfect spotless lamb that all other lambs prefigured. Right? He is that final lamb. And this is what is so amazing yet, brothers and sisters, at the same time as we, as we think through this and as we consider this, that it was the chief priest who every single year at the Passover offered up this lamb to be sacrificed. It was the chief priest who inspected the lamb to make sure that it was without spot and that it was a fit sacrifice to God for the sins of the people. And yet, what do we see in our text? That the chief priest who offered up the sacrifice and who had to inspect it, couldn't see for themselves the perfect, spotless Lamb of God who was right before their eyes that very day. And instead of of helping the people cover their sin through the offering of the Lamb of God, what He had done to them, instead has helped multiply their sins by having them join in and putting to death the true Lamb of God. Right? They did not, and they could not see the, the very gospel being enacted before their very eyes. And yet, brothers and sisters, there was one there who did. There was one there who did, who seen the gospel being acted out before his eyes. And we're told, starting in verse 21, that a passerby named Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus, and that's important. Right. Mark records these names because they're names that Christians would recognize. And we'll talk about that in just a minute. Right, But they, they recruit, they compel, they force Simon of Cyrene to, to, to carry this cross of Christ. Now, Simon himself is an important figure, one that we can learn much from, even though there's just a, a small a verse here with his name in it. Um, Simon of Cyrene was probably a Jew. Uh, Cyrene was, was filled with, with many Jews and Cyrene... Uh, would would be where now kind of, uh, northern Africa is. And so it's thought that Simon is making his pilgrimage as a Jew, as a good Jew, to Jerusalem in order that he might be there for the Passover feast. And instead, what we see is Simon, as he is heading towards the temple to see the the sacrifice of the Lamb, what happens? Instead, he is grabbed and he is forced to carry the cross of Christ. And what appears to have happened is after having this encounter with Christ, and beholding the, the gospel enacted before his eyes is that Simon himself becomes a believer. And he goes home and he tells his wife and he tells his children about this, Rufus and Alexander. Which is why Paul then says in Romans chapter 16, verse 13, as he's giving a list of, of all those who he wanted to be greeted, he says in verse 13, and greet Rufus. right? Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother who has been a mother to me as well. What we see is that as Simon is headed to the temple to see the Lamb of God slain, what ends up happening, what he ends up stumbling upon, although we know it's through God's divine providence, is that instead he stumbles upon the true Lamb of God and he witnesses the true Lamb of God being slain. And in that encounter with the true Lamb of God, he is changed. He is changed by it. It was the cross that he encountered It was in the cross that he encountered Christ. And brothers and sisters, it is in the cross that all of us must encounter Christ. And it is when we encounter Christ that we are changed by Christ. right? When we have been confronted with the Gospel, when we have been confronted by our own sin and misery, when we have been confronted by the sacrificial work of Christ, you cannot help, like Simon, like Rufus, like Simon's wife, but be changed by it. And today... Weekly, we need to understand that as we come into the presence of the Lord, every week we are encountering Christ. Every week you encounter Christ. Every Lord's Day that you walk in here and you encounter Christ, you likewise ought to walk out more sanctified than you came in. And so the question is, do you, do you walk in here more sanctified than you were when you walked out? Do you walk in, walk out of here with more knowledge? Do you walk out of here with greater love for God and for God's people? Do you walk out of here with a greater hatred of your sin? Do you walk out of here being able to recognize your sin more clearly now? Do you walk out of here with greater love for righteousness and a desire to, to, to bear crosses for Christ? Right, if you can't say that, then I question if you come here prepared to meet with the Lamb of God. Right, if you can't say that, I question that you come here, that you don't come here prepared to meet with the Lamb of God. And so we need to ask ourselves: When I come here, am I making good use of the means of grace? Right? Am I coming, and, and when I come, am I solely focused on Christ when I walk into the sanctuary? Am I attentive here? Do I continue to think about and pray about all that I have heard, through, not only throughout the rest of the Lord's day, but in the following days? so that my heart might be moved then to respond by what it is that I've learned? Do I spend time going back over what I learned with my spouse and with my children so that we can squeeze every last ounce of truth from the message? Right? Simon of Cyrene doesn't go home and forget about what he had just seen and what he had just learned and the encounter and the experience that he had just had. No, Simon of Cyrene went home and he talked to his wife and he talked to his children about That encounter with Christ changed him. And when we encounter Christ, it ought to change us as well. And when we encounter him every week as we gather corporately together, it ought to continue to change you. There ought not be a time when you stop being conformed to the image of his Son. As the author of Hebrews tells us, For it is by that single offering that he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. And it is because of Christ's sacrifice as that spotless Lamb of God that we can now have confidence to draw near to God. You see, the blood of bulls and goats could not clean the conscience of the Israelites. This is why we needed the sacrifice of Christ. right? The the Lamb of God who was able to take away our sins and give us a heart full of assurance that we now can draw near to God. Being sprinkled clean by the blood of Christ. And so how can we not be changed every Lord's Day that we gather? As we, as we come here, we meet with God and He transforms us by His Spirit through the service. Right Through the service, you are being conformed to the image of His Son. This is what it means for Christ to be Lamb of God, to forever be bringing us back to the Father as we now have all of our sins forgiven in Christ. This then leads us to our third and final point this morning which is Jesus, the Savior and King. Jesus, Savior and King. Starting in verse 22, we read that Jesus now has reached Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And this is outside the city. It was according to both Jewish and Roman custom that if you're going to put someone to death, you take them outside of the city. And so now Jesus is outside of the city and as He is about to be crucified, He is offered this mixture of, of wine and myrrh. Now, wine mixed with myrrh had the ability to be like a, a pain-relieving agent. It was, it was a pain reliever. And so the guards offer this uh, mercy to Christ before He is hung on the cross. They offer Him this, this wine mixed with myrrh, but we're told Jesus does not take it. Right? Then they, after stripping Him naked, divide His garments, fulfilling what Psalm 22, verse 18 tells us. They divide My garments among them, and for My clothing they cast lots. And if it wasn't humiliating enough to remove His clothes and to hang Him naked for all to see, what else do they do? Right? They put Jesus in between two robbers. Right? They place Him in the middle as if Jesus is the leader of the bunch, as if He is the most notorious criminal of them all. And as He hangs, we're told, people pass by and mock Him as that inscription over His head hangs, King of the Jews. Some were told, say, in verse 29 and 30, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. The chief priests and the scribes were told in verse 31, say, he saved others, but he cannot save himself. In verse 32, they continue, let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. We're even told the two that hangs on each side of him, revile him. And if they only knew if they only knew that as they mock Him and as they shout at Him, that as He hangs upon the cross, He is saving His people from their sins. As the people walked by and as they looked upon Christ in the cross, all they could see was weakness. That is all the people seen. But He hung there and He did not come down because He was up there saving His people from their sins. That is also why he doesn't drink this wine mixed with myrrh. Right? Remember, there was a, a cup that Christ had to drink. And he had to drink it in abundance. He had to drink it in full. And it was the fullness of the wrath of God poured out upon him. And he could not drink that wine mixed with myrrh to dull the pain at all. And instead, brothers and sisters, and what we need to see as Christ hangs upon the cross is his strength. We need to see the strength of Christ as he hangs upon that cross, for surely it hurt physically beyond words as the wounds in his hands and in his feet are tearing, as his weight is pulling him down as he hangs upon the cross. He must be in excruciating pain as his arms are stretched forth to each side, and as his hands and as his feet are impaled by these large nails. Even more so, the pain and the torment that he, that he is experiencing within his soul is, is so much worse. And yet he stayed in that place. Having the ability to actually do what they were mockingly suggesting. Right, Christ could have just as easily come down from the cross call upon his angels to come down and extinguish all of the antagonists there that day. But he didn't. And what we need to see is that in hanging upon the cross and in not coming down, what Jesus did is that he proved himself to be the Messiah and the Son of God because he obeyed his Father's will and he obeyed it unto death. This is what Jesus needed to do to be Savior. And so he hangs there and he takes it all He takes all the mocking. He takes the nails in His hands and His feet. And He does not speak. And He does not come down. And He does all of that for you. He takes all of that for you. And yet today the mocking still persists, does it not? The world still openly and defiantly mocks Christ. Right. They, they mock Him when they sin. They mock Him when they deny His Word. They mock Him when they deny His works. They mock Him when they deny His existence. They, they like the chief priests and the scribes, laugh saying, well, you know, where is your Savior? Where, where is Christ? I thought He was going to return. Right. People say, how can, how can your God exist when, it, when, when Christians all over the world are suffering and the wicked people are prospering? But what they do not understand is because of what Christ has accomplished on the cross, he now reigns in heaven as as king. The the battle has has already been won. And he now sits upon the throne, directing all things to their appointed ends. As king over the world, he is governing and sustaining and upholding all of his creation so that our breath and our very existence is owed to him. And the ability to continue to breathe one breath more for the ungodly is a grace that God extends to them. Because He's giving them one more opportunity to repent and believe because the day is coming when He will return in judgment. And then all the mouths will close and the knees will bend. And when that happens, the laughing of the the ungodly will be turned to fear. And the mocking of the ungodly will, will turn to trembling. Right? For when Christ returns, He's not returning in a borrowed robe. When Christ returns, He's not returning with a crown of thorns or a reed as a scepter. But when Christ returns, He is going to return in all of His glory. Arrayed in His glory. And all of those people who mocked His church and laughed at His church and ridiculed His church will shudder when they see the Lord. For when He returns, He's going to separate the sheep from the goats. And the sheep will go off into everlasting life to be with Him and the goats to eternal destruction, to eternal torment forever. This is why it's so important, brothers and sisters, for Christ to be your Savior and for Christ to be your King. Right? Can you say with Paul, I've been crucified with Christ? Can you say that today? Can you say that the sins that He died for on the cross were your sins? If you can, then you need to consider The curse that your sin placed upon Christ. And then you need to respond like Job did. In Job chapter 42 verse 6, he says, Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. And then we need to remind ourselves of what it means now to be believers. As Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 21, For to this you have been called. Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that now you might follow in His footsteps. What does that mean? It means being a people occupied by the cross. Being a people occupied by the cross. It is we who now, in light of the cross, are to be known by the world. They are to know who we are now in light of the cross. We are to be a people who, who live under the cross. Right, daily in prayer, for it is on that cross that Christ shed His blood so that we could draw near to the Father. Right, The cross ought to shape our minds. The cross ought to shape our lives. It ought to shape our relationships. It ought to shape the way that we, that we view our purpose in the world. It ought to shape our calendars. It ought to shape what we invest our time in. The cross ought to be the central focus of all of our lives. The cross ought to make us ready and willing to bear crosses. Right? It ought to cause us ready and willing to bear any cross that God sends our way if it means that we're doing it for the name of Christ and for the advancement of the Gospel because of what Christ has done for us. And what has God done for us in Christ? Right? He has sent to us His Son as the second Adam to fulfill what the first failed to do. He has sent His Son into the world right, to be the Lamb of God to do what those Old Testament sacrifices could not do. And He sent His Son into the world to be our Savior and our King, right? to, to redeem a people for Himself. And now it is He who, is by His grace as King, right? rules in the hearts of His people and continues and will until He returns to rule and reign over His church. Brothers and sisters, please bow your heads to me in prayer. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for Your Word. We are thankful for the Gospel. We are thankful for the cross. Please cause our hearts not to be hardened, Father. Not to be hardened by the message. Cause our hearts, Father, to uh, be softened by it. Cause us to receive uh, Your rebuke and Your reproof and Your correction. Uh, cause our our, our minds in our hearts to be moved by Your Word. Uh, Cause us every day to live under the cross and to direct and guide everything that we think, say, and do uh, by that cross. Father, we come before You this morning we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.